0: Lord be with you, and also with you. Brothers and sisters, would you open up your Bible to Daniel chapter 3? The reality of our life is that we all love a great uh, story where there's some kind of rescue that takes place. We, we love stories like Saving Private Ryan or that the, the great uh, 80s hit of MacGyver. We, we love watching our heroes be able to escape from any kind of situation where there's scrapes and bruises and, and near-death experiences, and they're able to even rescue other people in the midst of their situations. For some of us, we love reading books, good books, where uh, the hero of the story is having to work through some kind of naughty situation. More than likely, you might think of somebody like Sherlock Holmes. We love it where these rescues are involved and a mystery is resolved, and we prefer that these kind of rescues come near the end of the story. We love the climax, the building to a real problem, and but we don't want the story to drag on forever and ever into multiple volumes or several sequels of a movie, except for the great TV. Show called Lost, which I am watching again right now during this pandemic, where the rescue comes at the end of the sixth season. The reality is, though, most of us want deliverance or a rescue to come right then and to come right now. And that's what makes these stories so great. The deliverance comes all, comes and it's all put back to order again. And we, everything is the way it is supposed to be. In our world. So, what gives this reading of Daniel chapter 3 such power is that it is a rescue story. But it also gives, what gives it such power is that, while the reader knows the end of the story, because this is a very familiar story, we all know the end of the story, we recall that these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not know how this was all going to play out. And and likely as not, they were thinking that they probably would not be delivered from this, this test. And that's what gives this story power. The, the, the wonder of what they are doing is their ability to actually trust God as they are experiencing a fiery trial. This trust in God in the midst of a difficult, uh, of difficulty of opposition in the middle of persecution and suffering was something that Israel needed to see. And it is something that we also need to see in what we need to hear, what we need to believe. Because the fact of the matter is that we all go through difficulties, every one of us. Whether it be affliction or opposition or persecution, we know what fiery trials feel like and what they look like. And as we are in the midst of these trials and the testing of our faith that these trials actually offer, we need to know and we need to believe in the God whom we serve. The God of Israel, the God of the church, the God who came near in Jesus is able to save us out of the trial. But not only this, we must also come to believe that our Savior God comes near to us. He comes near to us in the midst of the trial and will walk with us through it. So my brothers and sisters, let's hear what Daniel has to say this morning as we listen to Daniel chapter 3. But before we start the reading of God's Word, would you pray with me? Let's pray. O God and our Father, we have offered up our lives to you in worship. And now we come to these moments where we expect to hear you speak to us through your living word, using the voice of a mere man like me. Knowing the depths of our needs, of our lives, and the power of your truth, Lord, would you come near to us now, we pray. And would would we be able to encounter you, our living God. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of Christ in Daniel chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, and the just, justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the province gathered for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O people, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a fire burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all people, nations, and languages Fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at a certain time, at at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in a furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought in. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image that I have set up? Now if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this manner. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace and will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will never not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it is usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and in their other garments, and they were thrown into the fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed the men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt and in the midst of of, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the, the door of the fiery, burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over their bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harm, and no smell of fire was upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, "'Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins for there is no god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in the previous chapter, if you remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dreamed this very strange dream. It was a huge statue. It was a head of gold. It had a chest of silver. The lower half was made of bronze and had clay and iron. And at some point, we aren't exactly sure when, but the king decided to make this ridiculously huge statue. It was nearly 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. It was made completely out of gold. He set up this gold statue in a level place out on a plain near the royal city of Babylon, and he demanded that it be worshiped. Why did Nebuchadnezzar do this? Well, we're not exactly sure, but maybe perhaps he had taken hints from the dream. After all, the head of gold represented him and his kingdom. Perhaps he began to think that about this image, And decide, let's expand upon it. We're not sure whether the statue actually was a representation of Nebuchadnezzar or if it was a representation of his gods. What what is important to recognize, however, is what it represented was it was Nebuchadnezzar's greatest it was a sign of power to build a statue made of gold, a huge statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, and it represented power. It was also an admission of his own godlike statue to, that the people were to bow down and worship him at this statue at his command. And in a real way, this is almost the most dangerous kind of idolatry—an idolatry that is stripped of religion, an idolatry of power, an idolatry of self and pride, and attributing sovereignty to forces in other people other than the true God of the world. And yet Nebuchadnezzar was able to demand worship. He wasn't able, though, to convert people's hearts. And In fact, the rhythms of this text suggest the mindlessness, the monotony that was going over scene after scene. Officials are listed time and time again. The, The instruments were listed time and time and again. It seemed like almost everybody in the entire world, except these three friends, mindlessly bowed down without much thought. The people would bow down, but they couldn't believe anything but just another ruler engaging in another self-aggrandizing kind of act. So Nebuchadnezzar apparently didn't notice that there were three people in his kingdom that were not bowing down to him. And it took several other Babylonians to accuse, maliciously accuse them to the king. And it seems like in in verse 12 that these men were jealous of these people men's positions. There they, they were certain Jews that you appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And these guys, these guys paid no attention to you whatsoever. If these were words that were calculated to get Nebuchadnezzar's blood boiling, it sure worked. Basically, these Babylonian officials were hitting the, the king right at the heart of the issue. These men are not like us. These guys do not believe that you are the true king of the world. They do not believe, Nebuchadnezzar, that you are godlike. And there was no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar flew into a furious rage. These three friends had had challenged his claims to be godlike and to be all-powerful. This could not be. He could not tolerate this. And so he had the three friends brought into him and arrested. He gave them a choice. Listen, you can either bow down and worship this God, worship me like everybody else, or you will be immediately thrown into the fiery furnace. But most telling, most telling are his final words before he flew into a, a fiery rage. The king, in his anger, in his supposed power as a, as a godlike emperor, boasted this. And who, and who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? Oh, he has no clue what's coming. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego felt no need to defend themselves. But they did testify to their covenant making and their covenant keeping God. Did you see that in verses 17 and 18? If this be so, O king, whom we serve, uh, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. He will deliver us. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. Or worship the golden image that you have set up. And with these words, the three friends acknowledge both the reality of God's power as well as the mystery of God's purposes. God is able to deliver. And God, this is the God who created all things by the power of his world word. This God could certainly intervene in any moment. But God may not. God may not deliver for reasons that seem best to him. For he is the God who not only created out of his power, but also he created out of his wisdom. They, they did not presume that God would, in fact, rescue him. They admitted that they could very well die. But they also confessed their determination, their determination to pay more attention to their God the true king of the world, than the king who pretended to be the true God of this world. So not unexpectedly, Nebuchadnezzar did not like this answer. He was filled with fury, and just by looking at his expression, his, his countenance changed. He became so hot that he decided that he was going to make the furnace even hotter. It was so hot that the men who had bound up uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego tied them up to throw them into the furnace. They, too, died. But two amazing things happened, my friends. First, the friends were unharmed, unbound, and they were walking around in this fire. How does this happen? But secondly, the second amazing thing that happened was that there was a fourth person in their midst. And his appearance is like the son of the gods. There was something about him that was otherworldly. And so Nebuchadnezzar inches up to this amazingly hot fire that he couldn't get too close because if he got too close, he himself would die. But he shouted from a close enough distance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And this is the first indication that the king is beginning to realize that another god, far more powerful than him, is at work. He admits that these friends were servants of the Most High God. But he, he has further confirmation when the friends emerge from this amazing fire. He and his mindless officials, who had bowed down to his great statue, examined these friends, and they saw that the fire had not, had not affected them in any way. Not a hair on their head had been harmed. But even more than that, they didn't even smell like smoke. Friends, if you have been to any kind of bonfire, if you have tried to roast any kind of marshmallows over the fire, you know that you cannot escape the smell of smoke. This was truly a deliverance in the first degree. This was truly a miracle. This was God entering in and delivering Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Nebuchadnezzar was humbled and he confessed that Israel's God, the God of Daniel and his friends, this God, he actually rescued them. He even professed admiration for these friends who set aside the king's command and yielded yielded up their bodies rather than to serve and worship any god except their own god. And clearly, he said, there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Did you catch that? No other god. Not Nebuchadnezzar, nor his gods. Whose god? That's right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God. This God, this God was able to deliver them out of the king of the world's hands. And this God rescued his own. Now surely this message would have comforted Israel. They, they, they were now in exile. The holy city had been decimated. The Davidic princes had been, had been taken into bondage and brought into exile to be re-educated. And God told Israel through the prophet Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years and maybe longer. Who knows? Would this, is this guy even right? So these, God's people would have felt as though they too were in some kind of fiery furnace. There, there was opposition, there was persecution, there was affliction, there was suffering. In fact, the teachers of Israel were probably recalling the words of Deuteronomy 4.20 for these people. Listen, this is what Deuteronomy 4.20 says. The Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace... Out of Egypt to be a people of his own inheritance as you are this day Egypt at one time was the fiery furnace now Babylon was their fiery furnace when would God come and when would God deliver his people again when would God come and deliver them out of this fiery furnace And in answer to these questions, God's people heard the story of Daniel's friends being delivered out of the fiery furnace by a direct intervention of their God. The response would have led them to confess that God has the power. God has the ability to rescue them and to save them from exile and restore them once again to a position of prominence in their world. But the comfort didn't simply come from the fact that God could rescue. Rather, it was a comfort in the fact that God came down to rescue. He came down into the fiery furnace and he would rescue them again. That's a good word, not just for Daniel's time, but it's also a good word for our time, right? We might be going through a fiery furnace right now. Persecution, opposition, affliction, suffering. God's word tells us that this will happen. 1 Peter 4 says, Beloved, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Some may be experiencing insult for the name of Christ genuine suffering as a christian there may be struggling deeply some of you may be struggling deeply with dark emotions maybe with shame with anger with lust or fear others might be dealing with a, a besetting sweet sin and wonder if they will ever be rescued will they ever be delivered whether god has they're wondering whether or not god actually has the ability to rescue maybe that's you We confess that these trials actually knock us off our feet. They've caused us to lie in bed with our chest pounding, our hands sweating, and our mind racing. And God's Word speaks to us in the midst of our fiery trials and calls us to trust in our God. Why? Because He is actually powerful. Our God, the God we know as Father, Son, and the Spirit, is able to enter into our struggle and deliver us. He is able to enter into our situations that appear absolutely impossible, the fiery trials that would kill other men and women. He is able to rescue us. And we learn the, the, to trust the power of our God and to know His merciful comfort. We must also, my friend, learn to trust the promises of our God. We know scriptures such as 1 Corinthians 10.13. Listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptations, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to Endure it. Or what about Isaiah 43? Listen to Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you walk and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Some of you probably need to... Find Isaiah 43, and those are the first uh, verses 2 and 3. Find him, circle it, memorize that. God promises, my friends, to comfort us as we learn to trust his power in the midst of our struggles. But above all, we look to the resurrection of Jesus. We, we see an empty tomb. We hear the angels say, he is risen. He is not here. And we believe that the God who raised Jesus from the dead, an apparent impossibility, can enter into our, struggle, uh, our our suffering and struggle and impossibility and create life out of death. Because we trust in the God who, is, who has come near to us in Jesus, the, the resurrection and the life. We believe that God can enter into our struggle. We believe and we are comforted. And yet, and yet while this story had comfort to Israel, it would have also confronted them as well. First, Israel would have been conf- confronted with the fact that faith does not demand that God will come rescue. Rather, faith Trust that God is able to rescue. And if God chooses not to rescue us, he will work even this for our salvation and for our good. In other words, Israel was confronted with the mystery of God's pur- purposes along with the reality of his power. And of course, this, we see this most clearly in the response of the three friends, right? God is able to rescue us, they said, and he will. But even if he does not, we will still trust him. And in this response, we see that the story doesn't hold out the false promise that God will save every faithful person from suffering and death. The mystery of God's purposes mean that we often don't know the greater purpose that God may have for us in our struggle, in our suffering, in our persecution. And so we learn to repeat and we learn to rest in the wonderful words of the first answer in that 16th century Heidelberg Catechism. The first question or the first question in the Heidelberg is what is your only comfort in life And in death. And here, listen to this answer. This is the answer that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head indeed all things must work together for my salvation therefore by his holy spirit he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him my friends we must admit that sometimes it is the will of our heavenly father that we go through dark providences, difficult, painful times. And yet we must also believe that behind this dark, frowning providence, behind this dark cloud in our lives, there is a smiling face. But we cannot, and we may not even see it for months or years, or maybe even on this side of eternity. We also have to confess that God does not bring these fiery trials into our lives because he's angry with us or because he desires to punish us or harm us. God is not a mean and malicious God towards his children. No, our God desires to draw us closer to him, even through painful and fiery trials that we experience. God often employs, uses, fiery furnaces in our lives in order to break us from our own idolatry of self and pride in order to draw us nearer to him. That is how our God works. And there is a second lesson that can be can have, would have confronted Israel. Idols cannot rescue or deliver us. Only the true living God can. Remember why the Israelites were in exile in the first place? They were in exile because... It wasn't because they needed a vacation from Palestine. They were there because of their own idolatry. They were in exile because they didn't believe that Yahweh, their God, was good as He said He was. They didn't believe that His steadfast love was better than life. Rather, they... They looked to the gods of other nations, worshiping them and clinging to them and offering sacrifices and even their own children to these other gods. So God brought judgment upon them in order to shake them from their idolatry, to wake them from their spiritual slumber. And so during this time of exile, God's people needed to learn hard lessons that the idols of Babylon and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Egyptians and the Persians cannot save them. Only the God of Israel can save them. The same lesson is what we need to learn as well, my friends. Our idols of power and sensuality, fame and reputation, security and and significance cannot save us academic prestige, career, advancement, or community reputation cannot rescue you. Addictive idolatries to alcohol, to drugs, to sex cannot deliver you. None of these things can save us from emptiness and abandonment. None can deliver us from persecution or opposition or affliction. Our idols, my friends, our idols cannot save us. Only our God can save us. Only our God can save us, because in Jesus the Messiah, He came into the midst of our trial, into the midst of our fiery furnace. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar looked up and saw a fourth person walking around in the midst of the fire that that killed the strong men from his army, and he was. He said he looked like. A son of the gods. My friends, the son of God, whom we know as Jesus the Messiah, in fact, walked among us. He experienced our pain, our suffering, and he even experienced death itself. God is powerful and he is able to save Jesus from his death but in the mystery of God's own purposes he did not save Jesus from death rather he allowed Jesus to die he allowed Jesus to experience God forsakenness and to bear the fiery trial of separation from God and to be our sin bearer and because he entered into our sufferings As the Messiah, the one who came to save his people from their sins, he is able to sympathize with us in our sorrows and able to sustain us all the way to the end. That is our God. So my friends, as we wrestle with our trials, with exile, with persecutions, with afflictions, with suffering, with life, with death, God calls us out and says, will you trust me? He shouts to us to trust that he is our Savior God, the one who is able to save. The one who has entered into our suffering To rescue us. Listen. He doesn't promise to save us from the fire. But he does promise to save us in the fire. We can trust that he will never forsake us now. And he will not forsake us at the end of the age. That, my friends, is our God. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, O God, that you are the king of heaven who knows what is ultimately best for each and every one of us. Father God, in the midst of our trials, our fiery furnaces, help us to trust you the true hero of the story, the one who steps into our time, our space, our sufferings. Help us to trust in you. We thank you, God, that you will never leave us nor forsake us, not now, not ever. Preserve us, O Lord, to the end. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Brothers and sisters, The time has come for our service to end this morning, but I want to remind you that next week, Sunday, we will be gathering in this place together. Please be taking the time to read through the realm on Facebook of what are all the precautions that we are taking for your good. I pray that we will be a merciful and loving and gracious people as we come together and desiring to lift up the name of Jesus. But until that time, receive the Lord's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Now and forevermore. Amen. My friends, the Lord be with you. And also with you. Now go in peace.